Lazarus, Mary, Simon Peter. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Welcome back to the Center for Spiritual Renewal podcast. In this fourth part of Dr. Harry Meyer's Four Gospel Many Resurrections, we hear from the Gospel according to John. Here we learn that the Good Shepherd calls us each by name to live the resurrection life now. Please enjoy. Thank you for coming back. In many ways, I was saying that we're saving the best for last. The Gospel of John is uh, really an amazing gospel. I've been teaching the Gospel of John. I mean, I've literally been teaching the Gospel of John every year for over 20 years. And every time I teach the Gospel of John, I see brand new things. And when I was preparing for this session this evening, I saw brand new things all over again. So the work of the Gospel of John is a work of uh, total genius, really. And I spend uh, uh, an intensive term at VST every other year teaching the Gospel of John now. And there are many of my former students who have sat through my John classes. I feel like I should be quizzing them as we go on, but I think I'll, I think I'll resist uh, that, that uh, uh, temptation. Very good. Okay. Four Gospels, many resurrections. So I don't think I need to repeat again what we mean by many resurrections, except that in John's Gospel, we have more resurrection stories than all the other Gospels, which is itself very, very rich. And we're going to be looking uh, specifically at John chapters 20 to 21. And the talk tonight is called Called by Name. And that's because in John's Gospel, resurrection happens when people are called by name. And this painting that we have here from Alexandra Cabanel, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, is a depiction of Mary who is turning when the gardener says, what are you looking for? And the gardener, of course, is Jesus incognito. And the resurrection is going to happen for Mary when Jesus calls her by name. Jesus will say, why, why are you weeping? And Mary will say, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have placed him. And then Jesus says, Mary. And then Mary says, Rabboni. And the resurrection has happened for her when her name is called, which is really extraordinarily beautiful and touching. Mary Magdalene has been called the apostle to the apostles. I think she's the chief among the apostles, though she gets she doesn't get very much good press in doing that. So John's gospel has been called the mystical gospel. Sometimes um, I like to think of John's gospel, if you think of um, the planets all circling around the sun in along the same plane. Now we have to think about Pluto. Now I know that Pluto has been demoted from being a planet, but let's just pretend that Pluto is, is, is a planet again for a moment. And the difference between the orbit of Pluto from the other planets is that uh, Pluto um, has a, a perpendicular orbit to the one of all of the other orbits. So as, as opposed to uh, all of the other planets on the same plane, uh, Pluto uh, intersects the plane at a 90 degree angle. And in many ways, uh, John's gospel is, is uh, like that. There's uh, also a lovely internet meme that is going around where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, there's four pictures, sorry, a picture of Matthew, Mark, and Luke dressed alongside each other in suits. And then you've got somebody dressed up like Elton John with feathers, purple feathers, and so on. And that's called the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is, is uh, really very, very different from the other Gospels, as, as we're going to see uh, in, in, in a little bit, and in many ways is very, very exotic. And I'm saying here that in John's Gospel, there's the resurrection in every space and time, because in John chapter 5, verse 24, we have an affirmation of what the resurrection in John's gospel is saying, where Jesus says in John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, those who hear my word and believe uh, him who sent me have eternal life. They do not come into judgment, but have passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
The hour is coming, future, and now is present, where the dead, that is to say the dead who are present, right, namely you and me, as we're going to talk about a little bit, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the resurrection in John's gospel is uh, not a future event. The resurrection of John's gospel is a present event. And so I think John is really saying uh, expressly what I have been suggesting the other gospels are saying, but John does it in a, in, in a very, very uh, dramatic way. So before we begin, I just want to give you some basic uh, historical backdrop of the Gospel of John. So John's Gospel um, was written sometime between 90 and 110, probably. The Gospel of John was not written by John, the son of Zebedee, the fisher uh, person, the follower of Jesus. And the Gospel of John is not the name of the author. The name, the Gospel of John, was attached to the Gospel at a later date. So there's nothing within the gospel itself that would say that it was written by a character named John. However, a key figure in the gospel is a figure called the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he occurs, or she, he or she appears in all of these texts that I have listed there. The gospel claims to contain his or her testimony. Perhaps his or her testimony is the kernel of the gospel that grew over time. Sandra Schneiders, who wrote it, who's written fantastic books about the Gospel of John, argues that the beloved disciple is Mary Magdalene. And I love that theory, but I don't know that we can really prove that, but I really, really love that theory. We should not think that the Gospel of John is written necessarily by a male. Perhaps, however, the Gospel of John reflects a complicated history of composition. In other words, that the Gospel of John was written over a period of time and that it started being written or composed in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus' death and that its composition ended in uh, Asia Minor or modern Turkey. And many scholars think that the Gospel of John perhaps was associated with the city of Ephesus. The Gospel of John, and now we enter into some of the darker currents of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John reflects a strong conflict between Jews and Gentiles, who are Jesus' followers, and Jews who aren't. So there is a lot of hostility in the pages of the Gospel of John against, quote-unquote, the Jews. John uses the phrase, the Jews, to describe those opposed to Jesus as his followers. But it's very important to remember that the author and the followers of Jesus, both, of course, in the gospel itself, but then also amongst the group that are the readers and the producers of John's gospel, as we have it, they are themselves Jewish, right? So one of the challenges for us as Christians is to understand that when John is writing, John is not writing as a Christian. John is writing as a Jewish Jesus follower against Jews who are not Jesus followers and uh, engages in strong othering language to target these uh, followers as uh, enemies of God. So we're back in a world of really intense intra-religious conflicts, so not inter, inter means between religions, like Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, etc. We're talking about intra-religious conflict, a conflict going on within the same religious tradition. We were talking earlier about the debates over the LGBTQ inclusion amongst the Anglicans uh, and the Lutherans and how contested the debate can become. One scholar says that John is the most anti-Jewish, where John is the most Jewish. That is to say that the gospel of John uses strong anti-Israel language, but from a tradition that can be found within the Hebrew scriptures themselves, in which Israel is denounced as idolatrous. So you can be extraordinarily Jewish but also engage in strong polemical language or strong language of opposition 
against your co-religionists by saying that you're the real thing and they're not the real thing. And you can do that then by quoting your own chapters and verses in order to make that case. Some important features of John's gospel that differ from the other's gospel. Again, I say that John is in a different orbit. We might say that John is on a different plane than the other gospels. Uh, the first is that John's uh, story of Jesus takes place over three years as opposed to one year in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is where we get the idea of the three-year ministry of Jesus. If we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would think that there was a one-year ministry of Jesus. But because we have John, we have a three-year ministry of Jesus. In the other Gospels, the center of action is Galilee. And then as the gospel unfolds, Jesus is on the way to Galilee, where he is arrested uh, and is crucified and resurrected. But in John's gospel, the center of action is not Galilee. It is in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem three times for three different Passover celebrations. So Jesus goes in and out of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is sort of like the gravitational center of the Gospel of John. Of course, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is also in Galilee, but the important point here is that it's not a Galilee to Jerusalem story, it's a Galilee and Jerusalem story. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John does many what these authors call signs and wonders and powers, acts of power, uh, by the way, the word miracle nowhere appears in the Gospels nor in the Bible as a whole. When divine acts are described, they're called as signs and wonders and powers. So Jesus does many signs and wonders and demonstration of power in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there are only seven in John, and John specifically calls them signs. So the Good News Bible, if you read the Good News Bible, unfortunately does a complete and total exegetical drive the professor of New Testament crazy exegetical move when they translate the Greek word signs in John's gospel as miracles. The word sign is specific to John's gospel, uh, as we'll see in a little bit, and there aren't many of them. There are only seven of them in the Gospel of John. Seven, of course, is a uh, important number. The divine number, the day uh, number seven belongs to God, the day that God rests and the creation of the world in seven days, etc. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple during the last week of his life. So after the Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. But in John's gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple at the start of the gospel, namely in the first year of his ministry in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. So the chronology is completely different. And if you think that the Bible needs to be completely and totally harmonized and is absolutely you know, inerrant and literal and so on and so forth, then you're having to face the idea that Jesus managed to cleanse the temple twice and use the exact same words when, when he was doing it, which is, I think, of course, quite silly. In the other Gospels, Jesus speaks uh, generally in short sayings, short pithy sayings. In John's Gospel, he speaks in long speeches. Um, Jesus in John's Gospel is the Jesus who can't stop talking. He speaks in long speeches. I call him the ever-ready Jesus, the Jesus who just keeps on talking. For example, chapters 14 to 17, which is uh, happens right after Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet and has dinner with them, is a long speech that Jesus gives on the night of his betrayal in the upper room, chapters 14 to 17. Uh, and I like I like my red letter Bible because my red letter Bible really demonstrates this really really well. I'll hold this up for you, so you see. So here you've got uh, chapters uh, fifteen and seventeen, for example. See that's all red. That means that's what Jesus says. Uh, and I have this uh, cartoon where uh, Jesus is reading the Bible, and Jesus says the red bits are my favorite bits because that's where Jesus is talking. 
women have a much more central role in John's gospel than the other ones. So, for example, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, about whom we just heard a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, two weeks ago, actually, in the lectionary, at the wedding of Cana and Galilee. Uh, the Samaritan woman, chapter four, she'll appear in Lent, because she always appears in Lent, uh, somewhat disastrously, but that's another story. Then Mary and Martha, Bethany, chapter 11, that also always appears in Lent, the raising of Lazarus. And then Mary, the first apostle, the one to whom Jesus first appears in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Women have a central role, a much more central role, uh, say a much more explicitly central role in John than in the other Gospels. The resurrection events occur as they do in Luke at Jerusalem or at around Jerusalem. So remember that Matthew and Mark have the resurrection events occurring in Mark's gospel, promised to be in, um, in uh, Galilee, uh, and in Matthew's gospel, expressly in Galilee. In Luke and John, the resurrection occurrences happen at or around Jerusalem. So this is a very different resurrection tradition, except that in John chapter 21, there is the long story of Jesus' resurrection uh, in Galilee that we'll be talking about in, in just a little bit. Now, uh, many scholars think that the original gospel was chapters 1 to 20, and that chapter 21 was a later edition that was tacked on to the gospel after the first edition of the gospel was written. And if you read the end of John chapter 20, you can see that it very much appears to be the conclusion of the gospel. And then suddenly we're lurched into Galilee where we have what appears to be a, uh, what we have is another resurrection story. And it sort of appears really to be a bit of a disjunction from what we've read before. That, that then would again suggest that the Gospel of John is very organic, uh, that it was not written in one place at one time, but that it was developed over a period of time, uh, written over uh, several decades. The Gospel of John claims for itself to be a spirit-inspired memory, which is very, very important, as we'll see in a little bit later. In the Gospel of John, in the Farewell Discourse, in chapters 14 to 17, in uh, Jesus' last speech to the disciples uh, before his uh, arrest at the Mount of Olives, he uh, says in John chapter 14, verse 25, to the disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the paraclete, which is a Johannine term, uh, which has been translated in various ways and then glossed as the Holy Spirit, but the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, given that the Gospel of John is filled with very, very long speeches of Jesus, I think that what the gospel is claiming for itself is that this is a spirit-inspired remembrance of what Jesus has said. And what this means then is that while the gospel of John at first glance appears to be a story about the life of Jesus up until his, through his death and resurrection, in fact, again, as we've already talked about earlier, the gospel is told from the perspective of the end of the story, namely from the perspective of the resurrection, as a whole discourse of spirit-inspired memory to talk about the resurrection. So that, if you will, the gospel of John appears under the semblance of a biography of the historical Jesus, but in fact, the Gospel of John is a post-resurrection retelling of Jesus as a resurrection teaching. So what John's Gospel is about then is not in the first place about the historical Jesus. What the Gospel of John is about is about what it means to be an Easter 
disciple. That's probably the most important claim that these that this time that we've had together has been wanting to uh, persuade you of. So there are uh, five different accounts of Easter, different Easter uh, resurrection accounts in, in John's gospel, and I want us to go through them now. So the first account is the one that is most parallel with what we find in the gospel of Luke and in the gospel of Mark. So you can see Luke on the left and Mark on the left, and then you can see John 1938 through to 21 verse 10. So the first thing we note is that John 1938 through to verse 42 uh, has the Joseph of Arimathea account. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also had first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. That's a lot of myrrh and aloes. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Then we have our first um, account of the resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple and they went toward the tomb. And I love this bit because now you have a who's going to get there first type thing. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So we're going to return to this first resurrection story uh, in a little bit. The second resurrection story uh, is where Mary experiences the resurrection. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So the other disciples have left. Mary's standing weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels, right? So uh, in Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 4, we have two men. And in Matthew 28, verse 2, we have an angel. So here we have one angel, two men, but here we have two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So here we have a similar um, literary uh, treatment to what we found with the Emmaus disciple, with the Emmaus travelers, where Jesus is meeting them incognito. And we have the same kind of irony that is going on here, but also we have a sense that we have a built up anticipation waiting for the penny to drop when Mary will recognize him, which will be a wonderful event. So this really magnifies the joyousness of this story. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold me for I've not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So here we have the Easter testimony. This is what makes Mary Magdalene an apostle. An apostle, namely, is somebody 
who has seen the Easter Jesus and has been sent out by Jesus. So Mary Magdalene uh, acclaims the apostolic confession, I have seen the Lord. And the resurrection happens to Mary when Mary hears Jesus say to her, Mary. So she doesn't recognize Jesus. I don't know. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they placed him. So no resurrection yet. Jesus says to her, Mary, and Easter morning has dawned at that moment for Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. The third account uh, appears now in chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And here we have our polemic that we talked about a little bit earlier, which I think is not historical. I think that's part of John's polemic against a group of antagonists that he is in a big argument with. Uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So if we remember back to John chapter 14, where Jesus promises that he will send the paraclete, and the paraclete will bring to the remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught, this is where they receive the paraclete at this moment, receive the Holy Spirit. They're in a locked room in the dark, and John is very fond of having a light versus dark motif going on throughout his gospel. Mary comes to the tomb while it's still dark, right? The disciples are in the locked room on the evening of that day, right? And so in John's gospel, in John chapter one, John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. This is the light of resurrection shining in the dark, but the dark cannot overcome the light of resurrection. The fourth account, which is the account of so-called doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, again, the apostolic affirmation, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place on my finger the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, which is a bit of a, a shout out to us who affirm the resurrection without having seen the historical reason Jesus raised from the dead and yet believe. And this gospel text, the Thomas gospel text, appears every year in Easter. And then we have the final account, which is in John chapter 21, uh, which is a really joyous account, but this one is at the Sea of Galilee. After this, Jesus himself again appeared, revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself to this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So notice the night motif going on here again. Now notice, just as day was breaking, there you've got John, right? The daylight, you can see the sun coming over the horizon just as the day was breaking. Of course, what better time for there to be the resurrection? 
Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So here we have again this sort of play between what we know and what the characters uh, in the story don't know. Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, of course, that disciple whom Jesus loved is always the one who has the best insight, says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea, impetuous Peter. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, where they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. When they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire. Now, this charcoal fire is very, very important because the last time we heard about a charcoal fire was back in chapter 18, where Peter was warming himself at a charcoal fire and denied Jesus three times. So the same word is being used there, charcoal fire. It only occurs in these two places. And we'll see that this is significant in a little bit. So there with fish lying on it and bread, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. We could spend a long time talking about all of these details, but we, we don't have time right now. But why 153? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said, we, we have the phrase, uh, come and see several times in John's gospel. And here we have the phrase, come and have breakfast. Now, one of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, and now we have the threefold confession of Peter, that matches up with the threefold denial of Peter, of knowing Jesus. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So you see, so we have a first charcoal fire with a threefold denial, and then we have a second uh, charcoal fire with a threefold confession, right? Very, very beautiful way that John has taken these two events uh, and uh, put them together. So called by name, I want to uh, point out the several places in John's gospel where we have references to being called by name. So the first one is in the so-called Good Shepherd Discourse, which uh, starts in John chapter 10 and goes uh, halfway through John chapter 10, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, those who do not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climb in by another way, those are thieves and robbers. But those who enter by the, but, but he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To those the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear their voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So he calls each of them, right? He calls, he calls each of them by name and leads them, and they know his voice, called by name. Later on in the same uh, Good Shepherd speech in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus continues, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid down my life for the sheep. Now this knowing, right, is the intimate knowing. And here this intimate knowing is also knowing each of the character of the sheep 
And the shepherd then calls uh, the sheep by their own particular names. In John chapter 11, we have another instance of being called by name, this time with the case in the case of Lazarus. So this is where uh, Jesus arrives at Bethany and Mary and Martha uh, blame Jesus for showing up late because their brother died and he's been in the tomb three days. So Jesus then goes to the tomb and then he instructs people, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, and Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to him, did I not tell you that if you would if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you hear me always, but I said this on account of the people standing by that they may believe that you send me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages and his feet wrapped with a cloth Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go, right? Lazarus hears the voice, I know my own, I call them my name. Jesus knows Lazarus and calls him out, and Lazarus then comes out into resurrection life. The language here of being bound with bandages, wrapped in a cloth, and being bound all of that language is the language that we find in John chapter 19, where Joseph of Arimathea binds Jesus' body. And then in John uh, chapter 20, where the two angels show the cloths at the place where Jesus was lying. So the point here is, is that this language of being bound and being released and so on is connecting us in a profound way with the Easter story that is to come in John chapters 19 and 20. In chapter 20, verse 15, of course, the Mary story, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, right? called by name. And then finally, Peter, what we just saw in John chapter 21, the charcoal breakfast. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? A second time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? A third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Right. We might say that for Simon Peter, this is when Easter happens, because Simon Peter realizes that he is forgiven. This is where Easter happens for Simon Peter. Now, notice that in each case, there is a calling by name, Lazarus, Mary, Simon Peter, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. We'll come back to this leading out uh, in just a little bit. So here, then, we can see how significant John chapter 5, verse 24 is that I began with, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, those who hear my word or hear my speech and believe the one who sent me have eternal life, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead, of course, Lazarus hears the voice of the Son of God and he lives. And we might say that Mary is in death and she hears the voice of the Son of God and she lives. And Peter is in death. And, and he hears the voice of the Son of God, and in hearing the voice, he lives. So 
resurrection here then again is not once upon not once upon a time and it's not sometime in the future it is in john's gospel the hour is coming and now is now is the resurrection is now the resurrection is here so when we look at the signs in john's gospel we have seven signs in John's gospel, and I'm just going to list them all here. And we'll look at these again in a little bit. We have seven signs, starting with the wedding at Cana and Galilee, and then ending with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we talk about each of these signs in John's gospel as invitations to Easter, then we can begin to understand how these sign stories are functioning on uh, multiple levels. I think the chief point to think about when we think about these sign stories is that these sign stories are not meant to be taken as once upon a time in Galilee, right? What these sign stories are wanting to communicate are stories about what it means to be in Easter, what it means to hear the voice of the Son of God and to live, to come out of your tomb and live. So just going through these in a very cursory manner, the first sign, the wedding at Cana and Galilee, right, where the wine is run out and then Mary asked Jesus to um, transform a very large quantity of water, 180 gallons of water, into wine. And the, it's the best wine of the party, right? So in Easter, we drink the best wine at the wedding feast. Easter life is like drinking the best wine at a wedding feast. The centurion's son in chapter four, this is where the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my son is, is, uh, is, is ill and dying. Come to my house. Uh, and, then, and then Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And then the centurion says, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a centurion. I have a lot of power and authority. I say to one person, come, another person, go. They come and go. So you just say uh, the word and my son will be healed. Right, so Jesus says, for your faith, your son is healed, right? Believe Jesus' word and live a resurrection story. The paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter 5, who has been lying beside the pool of Bethsaida for years and years and years, and he wants people to put him in the water when it moves, because there's the promise that when it moves, the spirit is present and he'll be healed right? And Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed, right? Which is a really telling question of the paralytic, right? If you want to be healed, then everything is going to be different for you, right? Profound resurrection theology, right? Beware. If you believe in Easter, things are going to be very different. You will rise and you will walk. Now, uh, we have to be careful not to get into ableist ideology here. We're talking about a text from the first century uh, CE. But I think that the point here, right, is that when you are in resurrection and you rise, you walk in new ways, in a dramatically new way. The question then becomes, do you want Easter? Because if you want Easter, nothing will ever be the same again. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, very, very long account, um, and following or in the middle of the uh, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus uh, gives his speech I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never hunger. So where do we go to be fed? Where do we go for bread in our lives, in our world? What does it mean 
to be fed by Jesus and to receive the bread of life. The healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, verse 1, and that actually that section goes all the way through to 10, chapter 10, verse 39. So usually in the lectionary, uh, the man born blind is a reading that we hear in Lent. Um, and usually we have chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to the end of the story of the man born blind, and then chapter 10, verses 1 to 39, which is the bit about the good shepherd, that usually appears after Easter in our liturgical tradition on for what in Luther, for Lutherans we call Good Shepherd Sunday. I don't know whether Anglicans call it Good Shepherd Sunday, but that's the Sunday where we have all of these sheep stories. But the text is meant to be read together from 9 chapter 1 all the way to chapter 10 verse 39. And the important point here in chapter 9 is that the man born blind sees, but the sighted Pharisees who oppose the man born blind, though they see they are blind. This is a sort of a classic juxtaposition between the blind who see and the see who are blind, and those who see who are blind. We, we found this in uh, the Gospel of Mark. If you remember, we have the three passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark, and then we have them framed by two healing stories of blind people. So in Mark's Gospel, then we have the blind versus seeing motif arranged around three passion predictions. In John's Gospel, we have the blind versus seeing motif in a conflict between the man who is born blind who sees and the Pharisees who don't, who do see who are blind. Uh, and in the case of the man born blind, uh, then John says that he was expelled from the synagogue. That might be a historical reference to followers of Jesus in a Jewish community in a synagogue that sort of came to a very, very pitched battle with each other and they saw themselves as being cast out or they cast themselves out, right? Very, very fierce divide and uh, competition going on here. The raising of Lazarus, 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 53. This is the last sign story, the final sign story before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, right? And here we have Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So we have many of these I am statements in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am, right? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says, right? So to be with the resurrection and the life is to be raised from the dead, this story is dramatic because it's the sixth story, which is really interesting, of course, because number six is the creation of humankind in the first creation story. And so in the creation story, of course, mortals die, uh, uh, Genesis chapter three. So here we have a man who's dead on the sixth sign, who now is going to be raised. And this raising story as the sixth sign occurs right before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's on account of the raising of Lazarus that Jesus' opponents uh, get together and now plot to execute Jesus. And they say, if we don't have Jesus executed, everybody will come to believe in him and there will be an uprising, and the Romans will come and destroy our city, which is completely and totally ironic, right? Because John's gospel is written after this big event that happened from 66 to 70, namely the Jewish war, where the Romans did come and destroy the city. And I think that what John is implying here through this irony is that the 
destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans came about because of Jewish crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's, it's very, very important to remember that the, the Jews did not crucify Jesus, right? The Romans crucified Jesus. But in this fierce othering speech and othering ideology, right? Othering means when we sort of uh, turn somebody into a monstrous power that is evil, wicked, and so on and so forth, and we are innocent and good, etc. So othering language is language where we dehumanize our neighbors. John's gospel engages in othering language by dehumanizing the Jews whom he opposes or whom this group opposes, and then foists the death of Jesus on the Jews when in fact it wasn't the Jews at all who crucified Jesus of Nazareth, it was the Romans who crucified Jesus of Nazareth. But oftentimes in religion, religious fights are by no means fair, and they can be very vicious, and indeed they can be extraordinarily violent. And our New Testament, despite what you might want to believe, is no exception to that rule. We have a lot of violence in the New Testament, uh, and I think that we need to own that as Christians in order to have a realistic appraisal of what is contained in our religious documents and what has then generated violence in our own past. Sign number seven, hooray! Of course, the divine number seven, what else would it be but the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Now, what does it mean to live the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Uh, love one another, Jesus says in the farewell discourse. If you are my disciples, you will love one another. A greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends. I do not call you uh, servants, I call you friends, right? I pray that they may be one, John chapter 17, the end of the farewell speech. I pray that they may be one even as we are one, Father. Believe. John's handbook for living the resurrection life is contained in John chapters uh, 14 to 17. Okay, so now we come to our last two uh, slides. As in the other three talks, what I did is I created a slide that places before you in a visual form the plot of the gospel. Here we have the plot of John's gospel. So you can see the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 on the left. And on the right, you can have the death, you can see the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm going to uh, come back to the uh, disciples are sent into the world in the upper right in a moment. But let's just begin with the line that follows uh, number one, number two, number three, et cetera. So what you've got there is you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the seven sign stories and underneath the number. So chapter two, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, chapter nine, 11, and chapters 18 to 20. And then you've got the farewell speech, chapters 13 to 17. And what you can see here is you can see that these stories are arranged around three Passovers. And at significant points, right, these sign stories happen at particular Jewish festivals. So the healing of the paralytic, number three, appears in Jerusalem at a feast of the Jews. Number four, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in John chapter six, appears at the second Passover where Jesus is present. The healing of a blind person happens at the Festival of Tabernacles. And then, of course, Passover 3 is the death of Jesus. And there you have the, uh, the holy dove there again, Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1. Then we have Jesus breathing on the disciples in John chapter 20. And then we have the promise in, in, in John chapter 15 of Jesus sending the paraclete or the Holy Spirit. And this paraclete and Holy Spirit then 
goes with the disciples as they are sent into the world. In John chapter 17, verse 18, Jesus prays for the disciples and he prays to the Father, even as you have sent me, Father, so send them, so that the disciples then are living the story of Jesus in the world. Now, that arc line at the top, if you follow the line from the right and then follow the curved line towards the left, you'll see on the left, the far left is of that arc is a little arrow. So what I mean to say by that is that John's gospel is a paraclete-inspired memory or anamnesis, right? John's gospel is inspired memory, and as inspired memory, it functions as Easter proclamation. So the paraclete, Jesus has sent the paraclete to bring to the remembrance all that Jesus has said, and this is what the gospel is, and this happens post-resurrection, where the disciples are sent into the world, as they are sent into the world, they remember all that Jesus taught. They remember the sign stories. And in remembering the sign stories, they know what they are to do and who they are to be as they are sent into the world. John's gospel is a carefully crafted account that unfolds over the course of three Passover celebrations. John's story presents seven exclamation marks, seven as in holy number, seven days of creation, etc., God's number seven, seven sign stories that make up the bulk of the gospel. You can see how it makes up the bulk of the gospel from the diagram. Each sign story is a way to conceive of resurrection life. The gospel as a whole is the sign of Jesus' promise that he will send the paraclete to the disciples so that they will be able to remember all that Jesus has taught them. John's gospel is anamnesis. So that is a fancy theological word. Anamnesis literally means making the past present again through memory, right? Making the past present via memory is anamnesis. When we worship, we engage in holy anamnesis, that is say making the past present in the reading of scripture and especially in the Eucharist. We remember on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, right? We remember the Eucharist, and in remembering the Eucharist, the Eucharist, the first Eucharist is made present. And we join together in the resurrection life in our gatherings. Our gatherings become the place when we see, touch, feel resurrection in the company of one another, the body of Christ. So, and this now brings us to the end of my presentation. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name and leads them out. In John's gospel, Jesus calls his own by name and leads them from death to life. Lazarus, come out, Jesus cries to his friend who has been rotting in a tomb for three days, actually four days. Mary, he says to the first apostle, Mary Magdalene, as she weeps before his tomb. Peter, son of John, do you love me? He asked three times over an Easter morning breakfast on the lakeshore in Galilee. Jesus calls each of them in a way specific to their situation out of death into resurrection life. What about us? John's Easter proclamation asks us, who is the one really buried in a tomb? Is it Jesus? 
or is it you and me? We expect death. So did Joseph of Arimathea. He took the crucified body of Jesus and bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, and bound Jesus' corpse with linen cloths and with the spices. Death weighs a lot. We know its burden can be unbearable. Woman, why are you weeping? Jesus incognito as a gardener asked Mary. Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him, she answers. We have stood at the graveyard weeping. We know her. Jesus has other ideas. He calls Lazarus, Mary, Peter, and yes, you and me by name, because the Good Shepherd knows each of us. He calls us to come forth from our tombs, not sometime in the future, but right now in this instant. In John's Gospel, the resurrection is not a future event, but a present reality. John calls us by name and asks us, what are the tombs we are lying in? What are the sepulchres we accept as just the way things are and always will be? What Faustian bargains, strategic allegiances, quid pro quos do we make with death? Jesus calls us to leave these tombs and live his resurrection. The world burns. Injustice destroys. Inequities divide. Is this really all we can and should expect? No, John explains. To Lazarus, Mary, Peter, Tom, Bryn, Jackie, David, Laurie, Barbara, every name of every person who has ever lived, he calls, come out. Just like Mary, who came while it was still dark and saw daybreak when Jesus called her by name, our night is passing. It is forever Easter morning. Jesus is here to bring you a fresh new day. Can you hear him call you by name? Thank you for listening to the Center for Spiritual Renewal podcast. We'll see you again.